Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us for part three of our Advent series on Christmas According to John by Daryl Johnson. In the final sermon of this Christmas series, Daryl continues his exposition of John 1 by making the case that our greatest need as humans is to see the glory of God. This deep human desire to behold glory is at the heart of John's gospel, and for John, the whole life of Jesus is one sustained manifestation of the glory of his Father. In this way, the Christmas story is not only filled with great wonder, but with the incredible manifestation of the glory of God in the infant Jesus. As you listen, we hope, along with Daryl, that you are caught up into the great and glorious wonder of the Incarnation, and we wish all of you a very Merry Christmas. It is now my privilege to invite you once again to give attention to the opening lines of the Gospel according to John, to the text that we have been calling the Overture. Would you please stand for the reading of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing that has come into being came into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men and women. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man and woman. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believed in his name, who were born not of flesh, nor of the will, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness of him, crying out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The central, pivotal line of the overture celebrates 
the most astounding event in history. The Word became flesh. The Word, the Logos, who was there in the beginning, indeed, who was there before the beginning, who was there in the beginning in intimate fellowship with God in the bosom of the Father, says John. The Word, the Logos, who was God, who is God, by whom all things came into being, became what he was not. The eternal Logos became what he was not. The Word became flesh, the creator of all things, visible and invisible. The eternally existing maker of everything that is becomes a human being, takes up residence in the midst of our brokenness and sin and death, and we beheld his glory. Now, why does John announce the most astounding thing that has ever taken place and then emphasize, and we beheld his glory? Why does he not say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and God and humanity were reconciled? That is one of the greatest implications of the coming of the Logos, is it not? Why not emphasize that? Or why not say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the rule of Satan was broken. That, too, is one of the implications of the series of events that begins in Bethlehem. Or why does John not say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the power of sin and death were defeated? Praise God, that, too is a great implication of the coming of the Logos in our flesh. Why not emphasize it? Why emphasize glory? Why this? And we beheld his glory. Because John the Evangelist, John the theologian, John the pastor, is always going deeper. We beheld his glory. John emphasizes this great implication of Christmas because John believes beholding glory is our greatest human need. It is? Yes, it is. Which is in part why John brings Moses into the overture. Moses of the Exodus. Moses, through whom God gives the law, as John points out. Moses is the human being who most clearly and most passionately expresses our greatest human need. You remember the story. It's recorded in Exodus chapter 33. Moses is in the Sinai Desert, somewhere between Egypt and the Promised Land. He's engaged in this intense conversation with the living God. And then right in the middle of the conversation, Moses cries out, show me your glory. Exodus 3.18, show me your glory. A bold request. One of the boldest requests any human being can ever make. And what we need to realize is that when Moses prays, show me your glory, Moses has everything. Moses has everything. We human beings think we need in order to be whole. Moses already has all of his basic needs met. Water miraculously flowing from rocks. 
manna spread over the ground every morning, quail galore at night. Moses already has quality relationships. He's married. He has children. He's working with his brother and sister. He already has guidance. He has the Ten Commandments and a host of other ordinances. He has this cloud to guide by day and a pillar of fire at night. Moses already has meaningful responsibilities. In fact, he probably has more responsibilities than he wants. He's just led a hundred of thousands of people across the desert. Moses already has freedom. He and his people have been liberated from 400 years of political and economic oppression. Moses already has hope without which we cannot live. He has this promise of a new life for his people in the promised land. Moses already has security. He's experiencing the very presence of the living God. He knows that God is there with him and for him. Moses has all the fame any human being would ever want. He's just led one of the most amazing revolutions in world history. Moses has it all. Everything we think we need to be human. And yet, Moses is not satisfied. It is not enough. And so he prays, Yahweh, Show me your glory. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory. In the New Testament, the word is doxa, which comes into the English language in words like doxology, as we pointed out before. Doxa magos, a word of glory. The Old Testament word is kabod. Which is not reflected in any English word I know of, except in the name Ikkabod, Ikkabod, which means, where's the glory? Now, what we need to know is that these words, doxa and kabod, have three primary meanings, or three nuances. The first is luminosity. Thus, the phrase in Luke's telling of the Christmas story, and the glory of the Lord shone around it. The second nuance is weightiness. The basic meaning of kavod is something weighty. Kavod is the heaviness of a thing. Now, we experience both of these nuances when ordinary light falls on our eyes. There's both luminosity and weightiness. When someone turns the light on in the early morning while it's still dark, we experience both brightness and heaviness on the eyes. When, therefore, kavod and doxa are used of the living God, they are referring to the weightiness of God's luminous presence. Hence, all the synonyms the biblical authors use, words like splendor, awesome, brightness, power, radiance, purity, fire. Now, the third nuance of these words is the most critical to grasp. Glory is a way of saying essence. The doxa of a thing is its essence. The kabod of a thing is its essence. An essence that shines forth with inherent weightiness. Moses' prayer, show me your glory, is therefore a prayer that God will reveal his essence. That God will reveal what it is that makes God, God. This is why the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament translates Moses' prayer, show me your glory, as show me yourself. Show me yourself. 
pull back this curtain that shields your very essence and show me who you are and what you are. Now, you have made this request many times. You may not have actually used Moses' word, but you have prayed this prayer many times. Show me your glory. Moses wants to see beauty behind beauty. Moses wants to see brilliance behind all brilliance. Moses wants to see splendor behind all splendors. So do I, and so do you. Moses wants to see majesty behind all majesty. Moses wants to see purity behind all purity, fire behind all fire, goodness behind all goodness, love behind all love. Moses is grateful, as I am and you are, for all the snatches of glory around us. But he knows he will not be satisfied until he sees glory itself. Or more precisely, he will not be satisfied until he sees glory himself. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory in the incarnation, in the eternal Word, taking up our flesh and blood. The living God is meeting the greatest of human needs. God is answering Moses' prayer. God is meeting our need to behold glory. Jesus is glory himself. Jesus is glory in the flesh. Jesus is glory within the confines of our humanity. He is the visible expression of the invisible God, the Apostle Paul would later say. All the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, we sang with Charles Wesley. He dwelt among us. John here is choosing his words very carefully. Well, he chooses his words carefully all the time. But precisely, especially here, he dwelt among us. Literally, this word means he pitched his tent, or he tabernacled. John is intentionally taking us back to that supreme place where glory was manifested before the events of the gospel. He's taking us back to that so-called tent of meeting. It was there that the cloud would descend. It was there that fire would shine. And so real, so palpable was all that glory that on one occasion, Moses was not able to enter the tent. It was so filled with weighty luminosity. The same thing happened in the temple centuries later that Solomon built. On the day of dedication, this glory was so palpable, the priests were unable to stand inside. They had to fall to their knees before the heaviness of that radiance. For I go, I'm going to experience that someday. We're going to experience something where we will not be able to. And the Word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John is saying that the flesh of Jesus of Nazareth is the new tent of meeting, the new temple, the new tabernacle. Jesus of Nazareth is this kavod in the flesh, the friend of sinners, is Shekinah glory in human form. He is glory 
breaking through from behind the shield. He is glory coming in such a way that we do not have to hide in the cleft of the rock like Moses did. He is glory coming in such a way that we can look at him and not be destroyed. Now, this is why John does not tell the transfiguration story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell it. It's the story of Peter, James, and John going up in the mountain with Jesus, where Jesus is transfigured. His face has changed. His clothing becomes white, gleaming. John does not tell that transfiguration story because for John, the whole of the life of Jesus of Nazareth is one sustained transfiguration. It's one sustained manifestation of glory. On the mountain, Peter wanted to build a tabernacle. Actually, he wanted to build three. One for Jesus and one for each of Moses and Elijah who showed up. But that's because Peter had not yet understood Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the place where glory dwells. Jesus is himself. Glory shining in human form. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. In every deed Jesus does, in every word Jesus speaks, we are beholding the very essence of the luminous, weighty God. Now, John makes this clear in the way he puts together the rest of his gospel. The whole of the gospel of John is built around the word glory. After the opening chapter, the book is divided into two parts, chapters 2 through 11 and chapters 12 through 21. And both halves are built around the word glory. In chapters 2 through 11, John gathers together some of the key deeds of Jesus And he brackets them all by glory. In in chapter 2, when Jesus performs the first great sign, turning water into wine, John writes, and so Jesus manifested his glory. And then in chapter 11, just before the last great sign, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, Jesus says, did I not say to you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? As one commentator said, the whole of John's gospel could be subtitled, we looked on his glory. And because we looked, we live. Jesus attends the wedding in Cana of Galilee. The party, as the party progresses, the couple being married runs out of wine. That's a huge social crisis. Jesus tells the waiters to draw some water from the water pots. What good is that going to be? When they do what he tells them to do, the water becomes wine. 100 gallons of stagnant water is turned into vintage wine. That is glory. Jesus cleanses the temple. He removes all the obstacles to prayer. That is glory. Jesus offers living water to the woman in Samaria, and he has to jump over all kinds of walls to do so. That's glory. Jesus heals a man who's been lame for 38 years. Rise, take up your mat, and walk. That is glory. Jesus takes five loaves of bread and two fish, gives thanks, and multiplies them to feed 5,000 men and women with 12 basketfuls of leftovers. That is glory. Jesus meets a man blind from birth. He spits on the ground. He makes up some clay, puts the clay on his eyes, tells the man to go to the poolside lowland and wash. The man does, and he comes back to see. That is glory. 
Jesus comes to Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem. His good friend Lazarus has died. Jesus sees Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, weeping. Jesus is deeply affected by their grief. That is glory. He asks, where have you laid them? They show him the tomb. And John says, Jesus weeps. That is glory. That is manifesting the glorious essence of the wicked God. Remove the stone, he says. Martha says, Lord, by this time there's going to be a stench. He's been in there four days. Jesus responds, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And he did. That is glory. We beheld his glory. Then the second half of the gospel, holy, what John Calvin calls the theater of glory. On Palm Sunday, Jesus declares, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Father, glorify your name. Father, show your glory. And then Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Glory? What does dying in the ground have to do with glory? What does that have to do with the luminosity and weightiness of the essence of God? A few evenings later, on Thursday night, Jesus and his disciples are gathered in an upper room. Jesus gets up from the dinner table. He lays aside his outer garments. We beheld his glory. He takes up a towel. We beheld his glory. He pours water into a basin. He gets down on his knees and he washes his disciples' feet. And we beheld his glory. This is glory. A few hours later, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas and the religious leaders come with the Roman soldiers to arrest him. And he does not resist. And we beheld his glory. They haul him off to Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate. Jesus is scourged 39 times with leather straps containing pieces of glass. And we beheld his glory. A crown of thorns is thrust on his head. He's hit in the face. He does not retaliate. And we beheld his glory. He's forced to carry his own cross up to the place called Golgotha. They lay the cross on the ground. They lay Jesus on the cross. They nail his hands and feet to the wood. Then they lift up that cross and they drop it in the hole. And for three hours he agonizes. And we beheld his glory in incomprehensible torture. It is finished, he cries. He bows his head and gives up his spirit. And we beheld his glory. Glory? This is glory? Yes, because John knows the mystery. God's glorious essence is finally manifested, not in some awesome display of power. God's glorious essence is finally manifested in the Word, the Logos, the Maker of all things, giving His life away for the life of the world. This is glory. The eternal God, emptying himself, pouring himself out ceaselessly so that human beings can experience the fullness of his life. That's glory. Show me your glory. Show me your essence. Show me your God what makes you be God. And God does. In willingly taking on our flesh in forever changing the mode of his existence 
and in dying on a cross that the world can live. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory, full of grace and truth. You can see I'm preaching beyond the walls. Somehow we've got to reach the world with this good news. But the glorious God manifests His glory in giving Himself that the world might live. Now, what happened? What happened when John and the others beheld all this glory? Moses' face shone with brightness even after his little glimpse of glory. So what happened to John and the others? And what will happen to us as we beheld this glory? Well, our faces just might shine. Because is it not a fact of life that what we fix our eyes on is reflected back in our eyes and on our countenance? When we see glory, it will be reflected in our eyes and on our faces, even when we're weary, and even when we're in the middle of struggle and stress, and we'll be changed. For is it not also a fact of life that we become like that on which we fix our attention? I hang on to what the Apostle Paul said to the disciples in the city of Corinth, a city that was drunk with power and lust and wealth. Second Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one glory to another glory. Paul is telling us that we are changed not by our efforts. We are changed by beholding. We are changed by looking at Jesus. We will become like the most beautiful human being who ever graced this planet by simply fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, I know this is going to happen. I know we're going to behold glory. I can promise you this because of the last reference of glory in the Gospel of John. It's in John 17, where Jesus prays, where Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, who is in the bosom of the Father, prays to his Father. John 17, 24. Father, I will. Father, I earnestly desire. Father, I earnestly desire that they whom you have given me be with me. Why? Why does he pray, Father, let my disciples be with me? Why? In order that they may behold my glory. Our greatest human need is going to be met because the greatest passion of glory is to reveal himself. We will see and we will live. Merry Christmas.